Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Like I said, we are starting our look this morning at uh, Paul's letters, two of them, to the church at Thessalonica. We have a guest speaker next week. Kelly, McC- uh, Kelly and Connie McClelland will be here, uh, the longtime missionaries in uh, Indonesia and uh, other parts of the world, and now serving as uh, in a ministry that ministers to missionaries. I'll talk about them in just a little bit. But since we have a, a guest speaker next week, I thought about doing a one-off sermon this morning so that we could go through Thessalonians uninterrupted. But I decided to dive on in because there is some stuff in here that I think will actually serve to prepare us, prepare our hearts for the ministry of the McClellans next week. Uh, So let's go ahead and start it. If you remember, back in Acts chapter 16, this is a very famous episode. We're not going to read it. I'm just going to refer to it. So, but we're going to turn. You can turn if you want to Acts 17. In Acts 16 was when uh, Paul and Silas were imprisoned. They were preaching the gospel in Philippi in Macedonia. And you remember this? There was this little girl following them around saying, these men are servants of the Most High God, and, but she had a demon. And uh, they cast the demon out of her, cost her employers some money, and they end up getting taken to the magistrate. They were beaten, and they were put in irons in prison in Philippi. And then, of course, at midnight, they're singing praises to the Lord, and the place is shaken, and their chains fall off, and they're freed. A whole jail fell apart, and and, and the jailer got ready to commit suicide because he thought, you know, he's really blowing it. And, And Paul says, no, don't kill yourself. We're all still here. And the man ran to him and said, what must I do to be saved? Do you remember this story, right? They go to their house, the jailer and his whole household are saved. And uh, very, very, one of these super uh, potent moments in the history of the early church and Paul and Silas's ministry. Uh, and then they are released, uh, kind of secretly. And Paul says, no, 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 you beat us publicly. You imprisoned us publicly. Uh, we're Roman citizens. We didn't even get a trial. You're going to let us go. You're going to let us go publicly. So they did. Brought them out into the open, basically sent them on their way with an apology. Paul and Silas take their time getting out of uh, Philippi. But then they went to Thessalonica. I want you, this is kind of important to understand Paul's tone when he begins this letter to the church in Thessalonica that he met them on his way from Philippi. He didn't stay there very long. We know for sure he was there three weeks, uh, but we don't know how much longer. But it was a short visit. But keep in mind, the last main city he went to, they got beaten and thrown in jail. This is the next place. And we can pick that story up in Acts chapter 17, just a short passage. We'll begin reading in verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Remember, they always went to the Jews first. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. 
And some of them were persuaded, them being the Jews. Some of the Jews were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews, who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some, evil, some of the evil men in the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren, uh, brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, Those, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security, bail, from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Now this is such an interesting uh, little episode here. For one thing, starting toward the end of it. It's so disingenuous, and it's exactly like the Jews who went before Pilate and were crying out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate's like, shall I crucify your king? And what did they say? We have no king but Caesar. They wanted Rome to do their dirty work. Why did the Jews, and why say the Jews, it wasn't all the Jews, it was the ruling Jews, the Sanhedrin, wanted Jesus dead. Why? Because he was a threat to them. They personally didn't trust in Christ. But their issue was theological. And Pilate even told them at one point, look, if you have a problem with Jesus, you deal with that in your own little culture there. This isn't a problem for for the Roman courts. And they came back and said, what? If you don't deal with this man, then you're no friend of Caesar because he makes himself out to be a king. Do you really think these Jews were loyal to Caesar? And these weren't either. They had no love in their hearts for the Roman government. But that's what they use. That's their, that's their leverage to get their way with the Roman authorities. These men, we are so concerned that these men who come here preaching Christ are going to turn the people's hearts from Caesar. That wasn't their concern. Problem was, they were afraid he was going to take all the power away from the Jewish leading authorities. That was their problem. So anyway, uh, they strong arm him. And the next thing you know, they, they take off. Uh, the brethren immediately, in the next verse, it says, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So they take off. So we know, again, they were there three weeks. I think maybe a little longer, but it wouldn't have been much longer than that. But they have three weeks in Thessalonica, three Sabbaths. They preach the word of God. They preach the gospel. And a number of the Jews believed. A multitude of the Gentiles believed. So we've got a pretty good start for the church in Thessalonica, but not a lot of time to build on it. Do you remember when he went to Corinth? He was there for a long time. When he went to Ephesus, he was there for a long time. He wasn't very long in Thessalonica. So, uh, next they go to Berea, and then Athens, and then to Corinth, like I said, where he stayed a while, and all the time he's on these travels, uh, traveling basically through Berea and Athens. He didn't stay long there either. But once he got to Corinth and uh, kind of got settled, all, he, he recollects that all during the time he's moving, his heart really longed to see the Thessalonians again because it was such a successful short time there. He didn't know how well they would hold up under the persecution. He saw the beginnings of it. It was an encouraging beginning, but just like that, he was out of the city. And so like any good apostle or pastor or leader, he wants to follow up. 
he didn't have a year to, to dig deep and make sure that, they were, that their roots were growing. He's, you know, it could have been like the, uh, the parable of the sower. You know, some of these seeds, as soon as they sowed, they sprang right up. But then what happened? Persecution and trials and this, and they wither. Uh, so that they immediately they grew up, but before, per, perhaps Paul is thinking before they could bear, through, bear fruit, the persecution would have driven, would have watered them down, and things had settled down. So he really, really desperately wanted to know how they were holding up. So from Corinth, he sends Timothy. Paul wants to go, but he's busy. He is really stuck in Corinth. And so he sends Timothy to check on them. And when Timothy returns, he writes this letter based on what he hears from Timothy. Now, uh, this, by the way, uh, for those of you who pay attention to this kind of thing, looks like this letter was written in about A.D. 50 or 51, which would make it the earliest uh, written, really, the earliest written book of the New Testament, certainly the earliest epistle with the possible exception of Galatians. Some people put Galatians a year or two earlier, uh, but most evidence points, points to this letter, 1 Thessalonians being the first uh, letter we have uh, that Paul wrote. And uh, let's go ahead and start in chapter 1, verse 1. And we'll read down through verse 10 for this first section. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Silvanus is Silas, by the way. It's just a different rendering of that name. So Silas, this is the same Silas that was in prison with Paul in Philippi. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to him, sorry, and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is one of the most gratifying, exciting, and challenging passages in the New Testament, especially there, six through eight, you became followers of us. Verse 7, you became examples to all. Verse 8, for from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. They were not sitting around waiting for Paul to come back. This was a quick start, three, four weeks, maybe five weeks, who knows. Introduced to the gospel. They heard enough to respond. Many believed Paul was gone. And they didn't sit there and say, well, I guess we'll sit here and wait till somebody comes back and establishes us. I guess we'll wait till Paul comes back and tells us what to do next. They, when they believed, they turned from things. Many of these Gentile Thessalonians 
turned from idol worship to worship the living God through Jesus Christ. This wasn't just a philosophical assent to something. They changed their worship practice and it made a difference. So what was the result? They became examples to all the surrounding regions. And when Paul would go to some of these surrounding regions or send a messenger uh, to share the gospel, uh, he would find out that the Thessalonians had already shared. They not only were thriving in their faith, they were already preaching the gospel they had just received. You see what I mean by challenging? I look at, uh, I've, I've referenced this book many times and referenced this, this singer many times, Keith Green. Uh, if you, if you want to read a great biography, read No Compromise by Keith Green. Keith Green was a well-known uh, contemporary Christian singer. Uh, got saved at age 20 or 21, I think. And died in a plane crash at age 28, I think. And in seven short years of ministry, led thousands of people to the Lord. Recorded some of the most piercing uh, songs. It wasn't just like, oh, here's a nice, happy song about Jesus. It was stuff that really preached to you, challenged you, uh, fed your faith. Uh, and published tracts, built a ministry, it was, and supported so many other. I mean, it usually takes years for people to just get settled in their faith enough to teach a Sunday school class. And this guy, by the time he died at 28, and it's not like he grew up in the church. He was a latecomer to Christ, relatively speaking. Did more. For, now, this is what Keith Green was gifted and called to do. Not everybody's called to do that. But the fact is, his heart was, now that I know this, now that I found what I know, I, what I finally realized I've been searching for my whole life, why do I want to waste any time helping other people meet this same Jesus? This was apparently the precise attitude of the Thessalonians. It wasn't like, oh yeah, this is cool. This, we'll just listen to this Paul guy while he's here and we'll agree with him. Well, now he's gone. Now what do we do? It's like, no, this makes a difference. If everything we believe is really true, the world needs to know this. And they didn't wait for Paul to get to these other places. When Paul got there, he finds out, guess what? Thessalonians had already been there. It's exciting stuff. Uh, let's move on. There's a couple things I want to get to. Uh, although I could, I, I could and have preached a whole sermon just on that little passage. Uh, they're not sitting around waiting for him to come back. They're not hunkering down. They're sharing. They're testifying. They're being an example. They're witnessing. And you'll notice, too, that most letters, I'm sure you've, you've seen this pattern. I think we've pointed it out. Most of Paul's letters, there's the greeting, the typical greeting, grace and peace to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father. And then he talks about how much he loves them, making mention in, in his prayers. And then it moves usually to a particular point of correction. You know, Galatians, it dives right in. I'm amazed at how quickly you're being deceived. Having begun in the spirit, will you now be made perfect in the flesh? Uh, or in Corinthians, it's the longer letters, and there's a lot more to correct there. Uh, so he, he'll offer specific correction, even some harsh discipline, and then some points of doctrine, just to spell some things out for them. And this letter is really different. Uh, Timothy had brought back such an encouraging and positive good word from Thessalonica that Paul almost simply writes a whole letter of attaboys and encouragement. 
guys are doing good. Keep doing good. And if you're going to get a letter from an apostle that is inspired by the Holy Ghost, that's the kind of letter you want to get. All right? Do you remember uh, one of my favorite guys to preach on in the Old Testament is King Asa? And he became king, and he went out and fought this. Uh, he, he actually was a good king, and he built up the kingdom. He got rid of some idols and, and was cleansing the land. And then a mighty army, twice as big as his own, came up, and he just trusted God and said, God, it's, you can deliver with one, you can deliver with a million. This, we're putting the battle in your hands. There's this great victory, and he comes marching victoriously back into town, and the prophet meets him. And usually when the prophet meets the king, what's the prophet there for? He's there to confront and correct and challenge the king, even if it costs his life. But this time it's, thus saith the Lord, you're doing really good, Asa. Keep doing the good things you're doing. Like, wow. Again, once again, God sends a prophet into your life. That's a great thing to hear from the prophet. So, uh, Timothy brings back this great word, and it is encouraging. Now, this is where I want to briefly mention the McClellans. They're going to be here next Sunday morning and Sunday night. Please make an effort to be here for both of those services because you will miss some great stuff if you are not here Sunday night. He's got a sermon. He's got some teaching. But they're going to, Sunday night, they're going to be sharing a lot more stories. And and I love it. I don't know how many of you have been here when Neil and Danette just kind of sit on the, on the stairs and tell stories about their experiences in Africa. They've got an even broader perspective because in addition to their, what, couple decades in Southeast Asia, they have now been serving for many, many years as sort of mentors and ministers to missionaries. They work for a great missionary organization founded by Don Richards, Don, uh, Don Richardson, legendary missionary, missionary, author of Peace Child and Eternity in Their Hearts. Uh, and their home base there, uh, missionaries will come home on furlough. They'll come there to, for seminars and stuff. And so they hear these stories while they are, you know, giving them materials and refreshing them. And so they, he's coming with a boatload of statistics he says, you'll be encouraged by this stuff. He goes, let me just share. This was on the phone the other day. So let me share just one with you. And I'll ask you this as a quiz. And I don't know if uh, Gary Crowell mentioned anything about this. But do you know where the fastest growing church is as measured by a percentage of the population? Iran. Iran. Who would have guessed it? <laughs> Think there's some persecution there? Comparable to China? Or worse, you better believe it. Those are the kinds of things that are encouraging to me. The church is growing fastest as a, measure, as a percentage of the population in Iran of all places. Anyway, this is the kind of thing I don't, I don't want you to miss. Come prepared to bless them, as always. And let me just say as a pastor, when I say come prepared to bless the missionaries, don't rob this church in order to do that. Is that fair? I want, you to, I want you to bless our missionaries, but I want you to be dedicated to supporting your home church. And I don't say that. Please don't take this as, oh, we need your help. Oh, my goodness, we're broke. We're not. We're a healthy church. Praise God. But we want to stay there, don't we? We just put a new parking lot in. We're getting ready to put a new roof on this, on this dome. Those things aren't cheap. Well, wouldn't that money be better spent on missionaries? Oh, it's more exciting 
to write a big fat check to the missionaries until 10 years from now when it's raining on Sunday morning inside. We have to take care of the things God has blessed us with, right? And so you come, well, I'm going to come with a big fat check for the missionary next week. And I'm going to do that by giving three quarters of my tithe to the missionary and a quarter of it to the church. I believe your tithe belongs to your local church. You, listen, you do what God leads you to do. All right? We're going to bless the McClellans regardless. I'm just telling, I'm just reminding you, if you've got a, you know, set, if you, if you, I'd encourage you to have a little fun that you just set aside for things like this, for when we have special speakers. We've already got a couple of great speakers, by the way, planned for next year. Uh, not going to share yet uh, who they are. But anyway, let's move on. Uh, so they're, they're going to come and encourage us, just like Timothy encouraged Paul with this good report. Now, uh, in chapter 2, he goes on to talk about uh, and it's kind of a reminisce about their time together. Remember when I was in Thessalonica? Here's how things were. Let's just read uh, some of that. We'll read all the way through this. It's a short chapter. I'm not going to read straight through it, but we'll go to about verse 12 here. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. Uh, and that's, once again, worth noticing. They had just come from Philippi. They had been abused in Philippi. And yet when they came, uh, even though this is fresh in his mind, they didn't go cautiously. They came in and spoke boldly. They didn't go warily. They weren't worrying. And they, but they certainly didn't go in there angrily. They came in tenderly, gently, uh, winsomely. See what he goes on to say. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we, I'm in verse 4, but as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak, of, uh, cloak for covetousness. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preached to you the gospel of God. This is kind of reminiscent of the time he spent in Corinth as a tent maker. This is apparently... Uh, something similar to what they were doing during their brief stay in Thessalonica. We came and our heart was to share the gospel. And so we, were, we came and we spoke bold words. We weren't trying to please men. We certainly weren't trying to get anything from you. And as further evidence of that, we worked and we toiled and we labored so that we wouldn't be a burden to you because all we wanted to do was bring you the word of God. Uh, verse 10, uh, you are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That uh, you know this, but it, I never get tired of reminding you. And I want it driven into you so that you can always remind others. When Paul says something like, walk worthy. 
walk worthily. He is not indicating or suggesting that we can earn our salvation or even earn God's favor, okay? I always think of that, uh, that scene in Saving Private Ryan at the end, you know, after Captain, what's his name, Tom Hanks has dragged his little squad through there to find this guy. Then they find themselves in a battle, and the whole point was to get this guy out of there because all of his brothers were already dead. And his men, and he, uh, Tom Hanks, the captain here, the commander, dies in accomplishing this mission. And as he's dying, he grabs Private Ryan, and you remember what he says? Earn this. Earn this. Isn't that an odd thing to say? Because he can't earn it. It's already been, he's, they've saved his life. They've already given it to him. So what's he saying? Walk in a manner worthy of this. Live your life as a way of, to make it worth what we already did. This is what the salvation of Christ is. I've given it to you. I've already paid for your salvation with my life. Now you walk in a way that honors the price that I paid to give you that salvation. Now, And then it goes on in verse 13. I'm going to rush ahead because there's something I definitely want to get to before we wrap this up. In verse 13, for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing because when you were, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea, in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us. But they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost." He's saying, look, we know you suffered. You received the word. You did it in gladness. You became imitators of us, and you suffered for it, but you are not alone. Guess what? Jesus suffered to the point of death. The prophets suffered to the point of death, and they persecuted us. So guess what, Thessalonians? Welcome to the club. You remember early in the book of Acts, one of the first times they preached, they were beaten and when they went back to their own company, what did they do? They thanked God that they had been counted worthy of suffering for Christ that way, that kind of persecution. So once again, it's a pat on the back for continuing on. It's also an encouragement saying, don't think that because you suffered, you did something wrong. Jesus suffered too. We suffered too. We are all in this thing together. Uh, and it's interesting, he also there mentions the wrath of God. That these Jews, if they remain unrepentant, it's horrible that not only have they not received Christ, but they are working actively to keep the Gentile world from receiving Christ. And so and that, that picture, they're filling up their cup of wrath. It's going to be poured out one of these days, right? Not on us, on the children of, of wrath. Okay. Uh, 17 to 20. Here's what, this is the passage we will wrap up with. Don't get up as soon as I'm done reading it. There are some things I've got to say about it, but this is the last passage we'll read. Verse 17, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time, in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? 
Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For you are our glory and our joy. I've preached this passage before also. And it is, I believe, one of the most succinct and possibly most, the most beautiful snapshot of the well done that we all desire to hear from Jesus Christ when he comes. First, you know, he talks briefly about this crown, and he's using the same imagery he's going to later use to talk about the return of Jesus Christ. I'm not an expert on this. I'm going by some things that Hayford uh, has written about this in his uh, commentary and introduction. But back in this day especially, a visit from a, a, a visiting king, a foreign king or royalty, or just a VIP from another region or country was a big, big deal. It's still a big deal, but back then it was an even bigger deal. They had fewer things competing for their attention. And uh, when you think about it, I mean, here we still get excited if we spot a celebrity. I mean, if we're walking, maybe you visit Hollywood where, where they live, it's still kind of a big deal to run into one, celebrity sightings, you bump into one. But then you see someone where you don't expect to be. I hear people talking about they were eating at a particular restaurant that I won't name. Uh, they were eating there, and Harrison Ford walked in because his plane had broken down. They had to make a landing, and he thought, well, while it's getting fixed, I'll go eat at this restaurant. And people, we saw him, and whoo, what a big deal. And, and it is kind of a big deal. It's kind of exciting to see somebody, but it's an even bigger deal if there's a presidential visit, something that's planned. Guess what? president uh, is flying into, into, into Springfield or Champaign. People travel and they go and there's a certain protocol for how they treat these visiting dignitaries. Even a bigger deal back then because you couldn't get as many places as fast since travel was slower and, and these arrangements had to be made. If a, if a monarch, if a, if a dignitary, some foreign potentate happened to visit your town, a lot went into that. And so when they showed up, Man, every manifestation of rolling out the red carpet. I mean, there would be people would line the streets and celebrate, and literally they would, they would give them gifts. And usually when they were there, they were there also to recognize maybe a local politician, uh, hand out rewards to citizens who had done good for them. Uh, it was this time of celebration. And this is, again, the imagery that Paul's going to invoke when he talks about the return of Christ. But here... He's talking about uh, what it's going to be like on that day when there will be rewards. When we go from here to there, suddenly all of us in the presence of the ultimate VIP. You know, go back to, I once again refer to my fascination with the Mercury astronauts. You know, one day they're all junior officers jockeying for promotion just like every other officer in the military. And then after one 15-minute suborbital flight splashing down in the Atlantic Ocean, Alan Shepard is in the White House getting a medal from President Kennedy. Rewards just like that from a big VIP. And one of these days, even though we all look the same and act the same and get along with everybody, we're going to be taken out of this world or our king is going to return to this one, and we're going to be standing in his presence, and he has, is coming with his reward in his hand. There will be accolades. There will be attaboys. There will be well-dones. And I believe there will be real, observable rewards, and we will be rewarded for how many people we influenced or led to Christ. But Paul, 
Paul is so full of love for the people he ministered to that he says this. Do you know what the real reward is? Do you know what the ultimate crown is? You guys being there on that day. You yourselves are our ultimate reward. Now, we can't get carried away of this. Never forget, it's the Holy Spirit who convicts, right? It's the, it's the kindness of God that leads men to repentance. It's the blood of Christ that saves us. But he does use men to deliver the gospel to men. He uses people to preach the gospel to people. So there really is a legitimate element on that day when we stand before Christ. And I can't tell you exactly what it's going to be like. But when God's, if we get an opportunity, so what did you do for me? And we can say things like, uh, well, because I was a Christian, I didn't smoke. I didn't drink. Uh, I didn't have sex outside of marriage. I got good grades. I was a good citizen. I was a pillar in the community. I didn't do anything to bring shame to the church. I never broke the law. Because I was a Christian, I behaved myself. Now, is there anything wrong with any of that? No. But I want you to compare it with this. Look who I brought with me. I gave my life for you. What did you do with that? How did you walk worthy of this calling? Well, I was so blessed, so relieved, and so grateful for what you did for me that I told as many people as I could, and these people, they came with me. I brought them with me, the Thessalonians. Well done. Well done. Keith, come up here. Just give that testimony real quick. So over the past year, Teresa befriended this young woman where her mother's in a senior living uh, place down in Tuscola. And so if it's my wife's friend, eventually that person becomes my friend. And so we befriended this young woman. And so uh, around the 4th of July, they were going to have a parade. And so they said, can anybody, does anybody have a trailer? Can, can they help us do the parade to take these older folks on the parade? So I volunteered. My wife volunteered me. And so I was in it. <laughs> Well, this young woman was the kind of coordinator director, and so I had to work with her about getting the trailer, get this and that. So the day of the parade, she rides in the truck with me, and, you know, we just talk, we just chat, just normal stuff. And, and uh, so over the past month or two months, she's posted some things on Facebook where it was, like, alarming, just alarming in ways, you know. And Pastor Scott's always saying, be around people that aren't Christians and even Wednesday night, I believe you did say something about that. If you don't have friends that aren't Christians, you know, you kind of need to be around them. And not that you, whatever, you know, you just be around them. And so this is just a kind of an acquaintance. And uh, so on that 4th of July parade, she goes, you know, home, homecoming's in September. Can you pull the trailer and take the folks in September for the homecoming parade? I said, sure, we'll do it. So we kind of coordinated. And Friday came, and, and Teresa's like, she gets this post, and this young woman had posted that last Saturday night she had been she had been, relapsed into some drugs, and last Saturday night she nearly coded. Her husband had to give her two doses of Narcan. They had to call an ambulance. So she reads this to me either Thursday or Friday morning, and since I'd 
seen this young woman's post, I'm like, Father, I pray that you'll send labors across her path and that they will witness to her <laughs> and that they'll be able to share the gospel with her. And come to find out, she told me Friday that her husband's family is in Louisiana and they are super Christians. And anytime she has a bad time, she'll contact the mother of, of the uncle. And so Friday, here we are in the cab of the truck. And I said to her, so how are you doing this week? She goes, you know? I said, yes, you posted on Facebook and Teresa read it to me. <laughs> I said, I know. She goes, well, I don't know how many people read that stuff. And I just, I just shared with her, how you doing? How's it going? 45 minutes in the truck, down the parade, pulling the people, just talking. We're two blocks into the trip, and I'm just talking like, you know, God does this. He did this. My dad was an alcoholic. God saved him. And uh, she goes, well, I'm not a Christian. I'm an atheist. And then me, I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> so uh, we just kept on talking the 45 minutes that got over with. And I handed her a sheet. Um, I heard Mark, I know, was, um, Mark Barclay this week, I heard him say, if you're going into the gates of hell, you better have your gloves on and be prepared. And so I had this. I have these things I've got typed out about all the scriptures, like you just said, the kindness of God leads to repentance. It's like 12 scriptures, John 3, 3, John 3, 16, John 3, 17, typed out. And I handed it to her, and I gave it to her, and I said, you take that home. And I said, whenever, 24 hours a day, that you want to give your life to Christ, just say, God, come in and help me. And that was Friday, 3.45, I left. Yesterday afternoon, I pick up my phone about 3.30, and there's this message on there. I gave my life to Christ this morning, and I just wanted you and Teresa to know it. Praise so, the Lord. Thank God. Praise the Lord. Can you imagine a better reward in heaven? I, 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 that kind of thing thrills me. But what I secretly look forward to are all the ones that I meet there who say, you don't know it but you're why I'm here today. But it, that, that has to be, even if we don't know, if we, even if we're not the ones that have the privilege of praying with them in that moment, please, please remember, as believers, if we're going to influence the world, if we're going to preach the gospel, we have to, be, we have to preach it to unbelievers. So we've got to have contact with unbelievers. We have to love them, but it also needs to be ultimately intentional. So you meet somebody and it's not like, hey, Nice to meet you. Do you know you're going to hell if you don't accept Jesus Christ right now? <laughs> this thing is more effective in relationship. Now, I say that to be kind of silly. There are people with the true evangelistic gift who can just about get away with that. I've seen it. I'm not one of them. But we can hang around people and say, well, I'm doing my job. I'm being friendly. You need to be friendly with an eye open looking for that opportunity to share Jesus. Your friendliness, your friendliness doesn't get them into heaven. The goodness of God, kindness of God leads to repentance, but they must hear the gospel. How shall they hear without a preacher? That's you and me. That's you and me, not just me, okay? If we're going to be saying, look who I brought with us, how do we do that? We do that by serving in the church, by teaching children's classes, 
We help with VBS. We invite people to church. We invite people to a small group. We tithe and give offerings to keep the church going and to support missionaries. All these things, every one of those is directly related to people being saved. You think about that. And we preach the gospel ourselves. I'm going to read you something I got from Tony Cook the other day. Go through my text here. Nope, that one's from Copeland. That one's, I'm kidding. I, act, I always act like a big wig. I get these texts from Tony Cook, and I'm sure he just he writes these things out and sends them out to 50 people at once, so it's not that big a deal. But anyway, uh, here it says, Scott, I'm not a hellfire. He must send out, this out to 50 people named Scott. Scott, I'm not a hellfire and brimstone preacher, as you know, but I found the following to be quite fascinating. I've been studying after Jonathan Edwards. He ministered during the 1700s and is considered by some to be America's greatest theologian. He famously preached sinners in the hands of an angry God, but he also preached much about the love and mercy of God. And I love that Tony Cook respects me enough to assume that I'd have no idea who Jonathan Edwards was. <laughs> he, he and George Whitfield, he and George Whitfield were the leading proponents of America's Great Awakening which resulted in massive numbers of people being born again. In the following, he responds to charges against himself and others preaching too passionately about the terrors of God's holy law, i.e. judgment of sin, hell, etc. Edwards writes, Why should they not be told as much of the truth as can be? If I am in danger of going to hell... I should be glad to know as much as, poss- as I possibly can of the dreadfulness of it. If I am very prone to neglect, if I am very prone to neglect due care to avoid it, he does me the best kindness who does most to represent to me the truth of the case and sets forth my misery and danger in the liveliest manner. If any of you who are heads of families saw one of your children in a house all on fire, and in imminent danger of being consumed in the flames, yet seemed to be very insensible of its danger, and neglected to escape after you had often called to it, the child, would you go on to speak to it only in a cold and indifferent manner? Would you not cry aloud and call earnestly to your child, and represent the danger it was in, and its own folly in delaying in the most lively manner of which you were capable? Would you try to reason with a child who won't come out of a burning house? You know, you really ought to think about it. Fire's hot. I know nobody wants to think about how hot the fire is. But we love you and we want you out of that house. No. It's not how you do it, is it? When ministers preach of hell and warn sinners to avoid it in a cold manner, though they may say in words that it is infinitely terrible, they contradict themselves. For actions, as I observed before, have a language as well as words. If a preacher's words represent the sinner's state as infinitely dreadful, while his behavior and manner and speaking contradict it, showing that the preacher does not think so, he defeats his own purpose. For the language of his actions in such a case is more if, language of his actions in such a case is much more effectual than the bare signification of his words. Some talk of it as an unreasonable thing to frighten persons into heaven. But I think it is a very reasonable thing to endeavor to frighten persons away from hell. They stand up on its brink and are just ready to fall into it and are senseless of their danger. 
It is not a reasonable thing to frighten. Is it not a reasonable thing to frighten a person out of a house on fire? The word frighten is commonly used for sudden, causeless fear or groundless surprise. But surely a just fear for which there is good reason is not to be spoken against under any such name. Stand up with me. That's the side of the equation we can't afford to forget. I want to share the gospel with people and I want to tell them how good God is and how wonderful heaven's going to be and how much I will enjoy seeing them there. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.